Welcome to The Cutting Room. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. Last week, I had the opportunity to meet with Michael Berenbaum at EditFest New York. Michael was there to talk about his work on the television show Sex and the City, as well as the subsequent movie and his other work in television. Michael's work also includes The Wire, War Inc., and his latest series Nurse Jackie. I had a chance to sit with him in a small room in the basement of the Directors Guild of America's Theater in Manhattan, New York. Can you tell me how you got started in film? I was one of those guys that started making 8mm films when I was like 10, 11 years old. Bored one weekend, Dad, what can I do? I'm bored. He said, here, here's my camera, go make a movie. So I was you know, learned how to go into the, into the dark bathroom and load the film because you had to do it in the dark and it basically, those old 8mm films you basically had 50 feet and you ran 25 feet in one direction and then you had to go back in the bathroom, flip it over and run the other 25 feet because it was essentially 16mm film that they would slice down the middle. So I made a bunch of movies with my friends all through high school and went to NYU film school and got an internship in an editing room when I was a senior. And just by basically being in the building where all these films were being edited, I got to meet a lot of people. And uh, back in those days when we were editing on film, uh, most of the editing rooms were centrally located in one or two buildings. So just by being there, you got to, by osmosis, become part of that world. And when that internship ended, I was able to sort of walk around with my scant resume and and get hired on another job right away. I had, to, I had to take a day off of work to go to my graduation <laughs> from college. What was your first film that you edited? The first film that I edited feature was called Bum Rap. I'll quickly tell you the weird story how I got the job. I was working on the movie Patty Hearst uh, as a first assistant. And on one Sunday, I got a call asking if I wanted to edit a movie, an independent film. And I thought, well, I'm work I said, I'm working. I can't really do it. And I hung up, and then I thought, what am I nuts? Somebody's offering me a movie to edit. So I called the guy back, and I went in, I interviewed with the director, and, and I got the job. And when we were finishing up the movie, I said to the director, I said, how did you find me? What, why did you call me? And he said, well, my brother is in this fraternity down at Emory, and one of his fraternity brothers said that a friend of his was a film editor. And Essentially, a good friend of mine from high school went to school with the director's brother. Fortuitous. Yeah, exactly. What would you say, or what would you suggest for a young editor just starting out? Cut anything. Just, you know, if you, if, you know, if you make your own little films with your camcorder, learn Final Cut or Avid or any program, because even though they don't really teach you to edit, that comes with experience, just having the knowledge of of how to work the equipment is, is a vital thing. Go to film schools, put your name up on their bulletin board, try and get a job editing a student film, anything you could get your hands on because these, are, these relationships that you make when you're young can carry you throughout your career. You could work with somebody on some small project. For instance, I worked on this children's show with this director. And 15 years later, he was directing a feature, and I worked with him again. So people come and go throughout your career, and don't burn bridges. <laughs> keep, keep, keep all your uh, people that you work with handy, and you never know who's going to become the next famous person that might you know, take you along. When you're working on a project such as Sex in the City, for a television show, you'll have multiple editors. With that, how do you maintain a uniform cutting approach and also have your voice heard as an editor? 
you don't really want your voice to be heard as an editor, as a, as a rule. I mean, you're serving the story and the and whatever project you happen to be on. You know, if there's some style that you have developed that's just a personal sense of style or a personal rhythm or pacing, that'll come through. But you're there to serve what you're working on. Um, in terms of keeping a common style, it's the same thing. You're, you're dealing with the show. They're shooting it in a certain fashion. Even though on a TV show there's all different directors, there's one, there's usually one or a few executive producers who most of the time write the show. There's tone meetings, what's the style of the show. It's all sort of established. And you just sort of address the material that you're given and, uh, you know, you can't make uh, one thing out of something completely different. I mean, you can affect the way it's, it plays and you can affect performances and such, but the show's the show. And Sex and City, we had pretty much two editors and uh, we just sort of leapfrogged back and forth. What would you suggest to producers when they're looking for multiple editors? You know what, it's mostly, I mean, there's the skill that, you know, is on your resume, but it's a lot of personality as well because half of it is the politics of the editing room. Because in editing, unlike on a set where there's it's, it's so much tension and pressure to get through the day and keep on schedule and keep on budget, the editing room is more, much more relaxed and you can cut it one way and then the producers could say, or the director, no, I, I didn't mean that, I meant try it this way. So you can change it to be you can adjust it accordingly as it's going. It's the personality because, you know, the, even though the directors change on a TV show, the producers stay the same and you spend a lot of time with them. So you, you want to have someone that you can sort of learn a second, you know, a second nature, you know what they want, you know what they're looking for. Certain times a director will come in, some, maybe not even having ever seen the show you're working on, and he'll sit in the cutting room and say, Let's lose that line. And you're, you know that that's one of the most important lines in the show because of it's may not have anything to do with that particular episode, but it's important for the series. So you're there to protect the show. You know it's going to go back in ultimately because the, the director will only take it so far on a TV show. He'll have his cut. And then the producers will come back in and want to see the editor's cut or, you know, start from, start from either the editor's cut or the director's cut to make adjustments. Studio has their input network. You talked about, I guess, pressures or disagreements in the post room. How do you diffuse a situation if the producers and directors aren't getting along? Like, because you want to get the best product and you don't want to choose yeah. sides or anything like that. Well, it's interesting. On, on different projects, on a TV show versus a movie, your alliances lie in different places. The politics are different. On a movie, you're serving the director because it's ultimately his movie, even though there's other people having input. On a TV show, the director really doesn't have much power at all. So he comes in and does his cut. You know, it's a, it's a union rule, and you, you want to make sure you're cutting it the way he intended it when he, when he shot it. But then he goes away, and he, you don't see him again. The producer comes in, and you know the, the producers will see what the director's done and you know like it or not like it they can adjust it accordingly so the politics aren't between a director and a producer on a tv show 
usually the director will go away and there's, there's no real tension there. You know, if the network or the studio has notes, which they usually do, you know, sometimes good, sometimes bad, that's when there uh, could be tension because that's where the, the power really lies and the producers may want to protect something that they love in the show and the studios may not like it, so they sort of have to work that out. You talked about the difference between film and, and TV there. Yeah. Was there a major difference bringing Sex and the City from TV to film in the editing room? And how did you go about cutting it so that people who had never seen the show would be able to get through the movie without being lost? That's a great question because we addressed that specifically in the movie. I didn't change all that much cutting-wise. Uh, it was shot differently because we went from 4 by 3 to 185. The, the aspect ratio expanded so they, they shot for these more of a panoramic uh, screen. Um, but the pacing was pretty much the same. We, on the TV show, we almost always cut to a close-up for a punchline. That was sort of an unwritten rule, and the, the, and, uh, and the pacing what was, was what was key. Uh, on the movie, not necessarily the case. Sometimes, you know, the, the jokes played a little wider because it was just a bigger screen. But the cutting from the show to the movie essentially stayed the same. The politics changed, certainly, because we now had a studio involved. There was now a New Line Pictures, which took over for HBO when it went to the screen. So there were new personalities in, in the studio seat and different people to report to and to agree or disagree on what was the content of the movie. And the opening, which, which you asked about, we screened the first cut of the movie and the director said that exactly what you brought up was missing. People are not going to know these characters or what went on before the movie because it wasn't there, it wasn't in the original script. So we had a, uh, a title company that was pitching us different ideas about how to open the film. They were all sort of abstract or stylistically appropriate to the show or, or what they were presenting, you know, like Cosmo glasses and high heels and New York City and different things like this. But what we realized after we watched the film for the first time was that we needed to, in a three minute sequence, bring everybody up to speed. So the director came up with this idea where we would, we would do it through Carrie's books. And, you know, tr trying to think about what clips from the show would be the most significant clips to identify each character. And we brought the letters in, from the books onto the screen and, and it just sort of developed from there. We, uh, what's in the movie was actually like version 25 of an idea that you know started when we realized what we needed. Was it your cutting that you did there or was it the title company that came in and did it? It was both. It was them sort of presenting their versions and their graphics and we sort of guided them and then I, we, they weren't cutting it at the pace that we were that we usually cut at so I went in and sort of supervised speeding it up and and uh, fine-tuning it a little bit. You talked about the director coming on from the show to the movie. Yeah, Michael Patrick King, he, he was the executive producer in the show for the last four or so years of the series. He took over when Darren Starr left to do some other shows. And he also wrote and uh, directed the movie. He also worked on The Comeback, which I just want to yes. talk about. And you did a bit on The Comeback. I did the first episode. 
how did you go about setting up that? Because I noticed, you did, like you said, you did the pilot. Yeah. How did you go up setting up the cutting style? Because it is, in a, in a, the whole point of the show is it's the rough footage. Right. And that's a very odd different, yeah. style of cutting in, because usually we're trying to hide the fact that it's... Yeah, all the so, flaws are just on display. So how did you go about setting up that approach for that cutter? Well, I'll tell you, it was really interesting because the original idea for that show they had a, a, multiple cameras going all the time. And the original idea was to sort of do a version of like what they do in 24 with like split screens and you would see the action from all the different cameras at the same time. One following, her name was Valerie Cherish in the show, one following her and one, uh, for example, the scene where she's going to confront the writers. One camera would be following her, one camera would be in the writer's office on them waiting for her to show up and then you know when she goes through the door and we cut all kinds of versions like this and ultimately we decided that for a comedy it was too distracting. You, your eyes were sort of trying to figure out where to look and we weren't able to sort of focus you for the, the joke or, or the comedy of it. So after many experiments, we sort of threw that whole split-screen thing out the window and just sort of cut it narratively, normal way, with the rough footage that, that they were shooting, all handheld mostly. And that approach to comedy versus Sex and the City versus something like War Inc., they're all so drastically different. Yeah. You know, Sex and the City is more of a dialogue-driven comedy with a few situations. Yeah. War Inc. is very satirical and dark. It's got like moments where you just sit and you watch this awkward pause with her and that's where the humor lies. Yeah. When you cut comedies, what approach do you take? You start out by watching the dailies and sort of getting a sense of what the actors were doing and what the director wanted and you can sort of watch the master and see what the scene is about and what's the purpose of the scene, what does it need to accomplish in the movie. Uh, on Sex and the City, it was very dialogue driven, it's all about the script and making it very punchy and fast and sharp. And, you know, there were the, moment, the dramatic moments where it settled down, but it was mostly the, the rapid cutting. The comeback was just sort of like letting things happen, letting Valerie sort of like wallow in her, the way she, her personality was and her, the situations she got herself into. It was just sort of letting, that was more letting it play out and letting Lisa sort of do her thing. And War Inc. was just, uh, it was a balance of the, the war stuff and keeping it afloat and keeping the actors moving along and just cutting for what, what was necessary, just sort of getting a, a rhythm of the thing. It was also, you know, we, we had to cut it down by quite a bit. The original cut was like, and this is with any movie, the original cut of that was like two hours and 15 minutes or something. And, yeah, ultimately, it was like an hour and 40 or something like that. So it's just, you find it's the rhythm of the film as you work on it and sort of just feed that. Jumping back to Sex and the City, how did you approach structuring the film? Because I noticed that there was, at the beginning, you juxtaposed Carrie with uh, Miranda in that Carrie's getting married or she gets proposed to and Miranda's relationship's falling apart. Mm -hmm. um, but then it ends up being parallel where she's broken up and they both... Well. There were, it was a long script, but we didn't change the structure that much. We did delete a lot of scenes uh, because it was, you know, it, it, we just couldn't play at the length that it was when we first put it together. So we took a lot of stuff out. 
The only thing that we really structurally changed drastically was the Samantha gaining weight story, mm -hmm. because that it was pointed out to us that it was happening so late in the movie, it was almost like too late to introduce a new storyline. Mm -hmm. So we sort of had to take a whole sequence that was playing as a whole towards the end of the movie, strip it down to its bare essentials, and find a way to bring it up into the middle of the film. And that was probably one of the last things we did before uh, losing a, just a couple of other little scenes just to keep the pace up. With the movie, because like you were saying, it was dialogue yeah. um, heavy, how do you keep things moving forward so the film doesn't drag uh, pacing-wise and so that the audience stays engaged? It's not like an action film where you can have dialogue scene, then you know, yeah. action scene, then dialogue scene. Right. Well, that's the trick, isn't yeah. it? Well, you know, Michael's such a great writer. You know, it's just a matter of cutting the movie so that it reflects the script and not letting it drag. You know, anytime, as I, as I put it together or after I put it together and I watch it with my assistant maybe, or, you know, we just watch it as an audience. And if we feel it's dragging, then, you know, we know we have to do something and address it. That's part of the job, knowing when it's sagging and sort of figuring out how to fix it. It's sort of like you learn to, to analyze what you're watching and figure out what's causing it to feel draggy. Because you, you're always getting notes from people you know, when it's done, from notes from uh, whether it's a preview audience or the studio or the producer or whatever. So they can say this part is boring or something's, I didn't like this or whatever, but they're not always fixating on exactly what's causing them to feel that way. So it's our job to sort of interpret the notes see what's, what in the film is not quite working and figure out what it is that's causing it not to work and sort of address that in our you know, recuts and different passes of the film. Especially with this, the Sex and the City, use uh, reactions a lot. What is your approach for cutting a scene with the reactions? And I'm particularly thinking of the fight between Miranda and Carrie at the restaurant with all the balloons. And... Sometimes more is said with the reaction than the actual dialogue. So. It's just a matter of putting your head into the scene and you know, finding the rhythm. You start in a scene, you start by watching it, and when you feel like it would be more interesting to see the person hear what's being said, then you cut to their reaction. If somebody's giving a long speech and they're, they have a take where it's just, they're just on and it's spot perfect or spot on, then uh, you just let it fly. But sometimes, sometimes you're cutting to reactions for technical reasons. Sometimes the actor flubs the line and you need to cut to another take, so you need to cut to somebody else. But usually, like in that scene in particular, you know, Miranda had a secret. She, you know, she screwed up the wedding and she had, hadn't been able to tell Carrie about it yet. So as Carrie sort of talking about her, why her wedding fell apart, the intense emotion of the scene is on Miranda's face, you know, because she has the secret and it's sort of being intensified by hearing Carrie talk about it. So a lot of it played there. And then once Carrie learned about it, you want to see her reaction to getting the news and then Miranda sort of squirming. So it's like a balance. You, gotta, you just sort of have to, you know, it's like a tennis match going back and forth. Where's the key moment? Where do you want to be for that exact moment? And when to cut back and how long do you want to stay on each shot? And, you know, you, you, the actors do it, but you sort of sometimes goose it a little bit by pacing it up just to intensify it. To jump to War, Inc., I felt like the first 20 minutes has a very Western feel to it. And was that <laughs> yeah. on purpose, and how'd you go about structuring that? 
part of the film. Yeah, it was. I mean, John Cusack's idea was that it was a, he was like a samurai, and he wanted to sort of, it was sort of like a samurai in a spaghetti western. So the opening, before you even see anything, the music you hear is very Sergio Leone. It's very, you know, fistful of dollars, you know. So we sort of set that up right from the start. And, you know, he was, he was this mysterious character uh, walking to this bar and people are speaking this German or whatever language. And, uh, you know, just to set up this hitman character who uh, sort of was like, couldn't come to terms with himself which we sort of set up in the, in the next scene in the plane. But, you know, then we sort of had to make sure that people knew it was a comedy. You know, some people, you know, because it wasn't, it's not that funny in the beginning, so, but, but it gets kind of wacky towards the end. So you have to sort of, you have to establish the tone of the movie right up front. You can't just switch halfway through. So we had this, the beginning scene with the assassination, and then we had to immediately find a way to set the tone for the rest of the movie let people know it was a comedy, let people know it was okay to laugh, it was a satire. And that, that was all very, you know, purposeful. But once again, it was, it was shot in a different way from Sex and the City. You just, you just sort of have to look at what you have to work with and just sort of, you know, let it tell you what needs to be done. Because you follow that, that scene up in particular with him talking to the OnStar. Exactly. And there's this really um, odd relationship between him and the OnStar. It was, and that, th all those scenes were were tricky because they were originally much longer than they are in the finished movie. And there was, there was all this dialogue and John improvised a lot of stuff and they really wanted to establish that relationship but we, we finally agreed that it took very little to establish that relationship. And as in every movie, less is more. Mm -hmm. You know, you, people usually get it pretty quickly. You don't have to sort of dwell on anything. You don't want to get behind the audience. So as soon as it's sort of you get the idea, let, let's move ahead and move on to the next section. Yeah, I was going to talk to you about his relationship with uh, the OnStar, because it's like, it's very unique. Yeah, it was Montel Williams ended oh, up yeah? doing the voice. Uh, we, had, we, we went through a lot of different people to do the voice. You know, originally it was like, you know, whether it was our assistant editor or one of the producers, you know, people kept, John did a version, he tried to disguise his voice, it was his own but uh, it ended up being Montel Williams. The flashbacks that we get, yeah, I found that um, he sort of uses the Tabasco sauce and does the shot, and then we have these flashbacks. Right. And they're very uh, tight and quick. Yeah. How did you go about structuring those so we get little bits of information, but not enough to give away the ending? Well, that's, that's, you hit on a very key thing, because you know they shot those, that material with, you know, I guess they flashed in the camera, turned the camera on and off. So I had a lot of like flash frames to, to sort of work with. And, you know, we experimented a lot. Originally, there was uh, even more of them. Like once he arrived at the hotel where he met uh, Joan Cusack, there was another one in the car before he got out. Um, but the first one in the bar, in the film now, you see flashbacks of his wife. Originally, there were flashbacks of the wife and the baby and as quick as they were just those couple of frames led people to think to, to it sort of gave away the ending before the ending was even even knew that there was an ending to give away you know people knew right from the start that Hillary Duff uh, was uh, his daughter you know it wasn't even a question it was it was you know it was aimed to be 
sort of a surprise, but people sort of got it so quickly, we took out all the references to the daughter till like halfway through the film, when, she, when Hillary herself was an established character already. So I just have one more question for you, and I ask this of everyone. Um, what's your favorite guilty pleasure film? Ah. Uh, well, I, I probably have to go back to the early 70s when a, a lot of my favorite films are. Um, one of my, I'll give you two. One of my favorite films, and it's not such a guilty pleasure, but one of my favorite films is The Day of the Jackal from 1973. Um, two guilty pleasures are a film called The Last of Sheila, which is a film that was written by Anthony Perkins and Stephen Sondheim, and it's a murder mystery. And I know something about it when I saw it when I was a kid just sort of stuck with me my whole life. And uh, another like sort of film that I've loved through the years is a Burt Reynolds movie called Seamus, which probably not many people know of, but it's Burt and Diane Cannon, and it's he just plays a tough Brooklyn cop, and it just it just uh, struck a chord when I was a kid, and. Uh, a movie I like to go back and watch every once in a while. Well, well, thank you very much for letting me interview. Thank you. So that was my interview with Michael Berenbaum. I'd like to thank Michael for giving me the time to interview him. I'd also like to thank my producer, Lauren Woodcock, as well as Jenny McCormick from the American Cinema Editors. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.